starting at Matthew 19, 27. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreement with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Let's pray as we um, begin and come and hear God's words. The psalmist writes, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it is sweet. We pray that this morning we would taste its sweetness. And we ask that you would give us understanding, understanding of your kingdom. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in my first year working in London, I remember annual bonus time arriving. And I received a letter from my line manager And then what followed was a slightly embarrassing conversation where I opened the letter and I had a look and I said, oh, thanks, that's very kind. To which he replied, don't say thanks, you've earned it. Well, we live in a world and in a culture where rewards are performance-based. We're so used to it 
in the workplace, maybe we have that moment where we sit down and agree our targets, and then if we hit them or we exceed them, then there are rewards. We've been perhaps watching the World Athletics Championship over the summer. The athlete who performs best wins. We put something in, we expect something out. It's so common in our world, this attitude, and it's the attitude we find expressed in Peter's question back there in verse 27. Peter says to Jesus, See, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Now, Peter and his disciples have counted great costs as they follow Jesus, but they still have an assumption that the kingdom of heaven is a place where there's a performance-based reward scheme. And here Jesus is offering a correction. By chapter 19, verse 30, we read these words, but many who are first will be last and the last first. And it's a key saying for us this morning. It's In fact, it works like a bit of a sandwich for the parable. We get it there in 19, verse 30. This is the bread. Many who are first will be last and the last first. Then the parable. And then 20, verse 16. So the last will be first and, um, and the first last. So we're asking ourselves this morning, what does this saying mean? What is Jesus saying as he corrects Peter? And Jesus tells us the parable, and it begins, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master. See, the parable will explain the saying, and it will show us what the kingdom of heaven is like, and it will point to the master. And we'll see this morning that the kingdom of heaven is not about performance-based rewards, but it's an economy of grace. Grace in the Bible means the undeserved kindness of God. Grace is a gift given. It's not earned, but it's given without expectation of payment. And this is the way the kingdom of heaven works. The story goes that C.S. Lewis once attended a conference uh, on the subject uh, debating different religions, and they were discussing the uniqueness of Christianity. And Lewis is said to have interjected, oh, that's easy. It's grace. And so the question we're looking at all through this section in chapters 19 and 20, well, is what is the kingdom of heaven like and will we accept it on God's terms? And this morning the question is, will we accept God's grace? The alternative is to harden our hearts, to make God's word void, or to create a man-made religion where in some way there's a performance-based reward. But that's not what the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like a master. And so we're going to consider three points this morning. First, the generous generosity of God. Then we'll be confronted with the scandal of grace. And finally, we'll see how we can grow to accept this wonderful reality of the kingdom of heaven as we gaze at God's goodness, which will guard us against grumbling. So first, the generosity of God. Peter's question in 1927 raises the issue. We've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus' response is very kind. He responds in two parts. First, he, he actually affirms Peter in verse 28 and 29. And then from verse 30 onwards, he corrects Peter. So the affirmation, verse 28. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me, will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake 
will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. We saw last week that when it comes to the matter of sin and the kingdom of heaven and eternal life, it's impossible for any human being to save themselves. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. Verse 26, Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible. But then wonderful words, but with God all things are possible. We're to come to Jesus like little children, which receive the gift of salvation. God does it all. And the blessings are vast. Verses 28 and 29 are all gift. And they show us that to count the cost in this world as we follow Jesus, well, it is worth it. There's a new world to come under the rule of a wonderful king, a world where God will wipe away every tear and death shall be no more and there'll be no more mourning, crying or pain. And it's a world where Peter and his disciples, well, they will have a role to play. It seems a role in judgment. And I think in the context, it's a role judging this old way of earning our salvation by our own works. They will see for themselves that it's impossible to save ourselves and man-made religions will fail. And then verse 29 fills out the blessings of life under Jesus' rule. Peter and his disciples are telling the truth when they say, we've left everything to follow you. And in a gathering like this this morning, we could tell stories of the costs we have counted to follow Jesus, perhaps having lost property, possessions, relationships, even with family. And Jesus says it's very costly, but it's worth it. Because look at 29, we will have a hundredfold, receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. I'm not an investments expert, but I'm told that an investment that doubles after a few years is an excellent investment. It's a 100% return. Well, a hundredfold is a 10,000% return on investment. And the point is, it's off the scale. In response to Peter's question, Jesus assures him, God gives in utter abundance. Part of his global family, the cross-shaped family of love, forgiveness, repentance and reconciliation. A hundredfold. Utter abundance. But Jesus also corrects Peter, verse 30. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Because the kingdom of heaven is not performance-based. Verse 29 is so abundantly vast, it's, it's almost laughable to see it as a payment. It's, it's grace. And so Jesus explains... Chapter 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Now the focus of this story all the way through is the master. The master represents God. The kingdom of heaven is like a master. And all through it's narrated in terms of what the master does. It shows us what he's like. And we find that he's very generous. The scene in these early verses is perhaps the village square. The master goes out to find some workers. Every day the workers would gather there. They don't have work and they need it in order to earn and buy food and survive for the day. When we lived in southeast London, we'd see this kind of exact scene outside the B&Q car park on the Old Kent Road as labourers waited, casual labourers, waiting to be hired for the day. And this master comes to them, and he offers them good money to work in his vineyard. A denarius, a solid day's wage for a labourer. This was a great morning for them. 
And then the master doesn't stop there, though. Verse 3. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I'll give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. The third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour, 9 a.m., midday, 3 p.m., he goes out again and again to hire more laborers. Now I've come across various suggestions as to why he does this. Some suggest perhaps it's a really crucial day for the grape harvest and he needs more workers to really capitalize. Or maybe it was the day before the Sabbath, so an extra push was needed before that day of rest. But actually, when we look at the the parable, there's no suggestion of any of that at all. The focus is all on the master and what he's doing. And what we see in the story is he repeatedly goes and he finds those in need of work and he gives it to them. So it's not a parable about the master's need for workers. It's a story of the master meeting the needs of helpless laborers. And verses 6 and 7 drive it home. And about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. These workers have stood idle all day. Why they're waiting isn't really clear. The word for idle could mean unwillingness or laziness, but it could equally mean unemployment. And so what is clear here, though, is the group have a pressing need. They're still standing idle, and it's 5 p.m. B&Q is closing. Presumably, they're getting ready for a day without a wage, and so an evening without bread. And Ben, here is the master again. And they go into the vineyard until sundown. And what follows is even more generosity. Verse 8. And when the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. According to Deuteronomy 24, wages had to be paid at the evening of the working day. Deuteronomy says, you shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it. And so the master instructs the foreman to pay them. And to our surprise, he calls those hired at the 11th hour first. And I wonder what they were expecting. A small sum, presumably. They'd only worked an hour. They'd not earned more. But at least that would be better than nothing. And yet, verse 9, each of them received a denarius. We don't get told their reaction, but we could imagine joy, thankfulness, provision for the day given, their daily bread. The kingdom of heaven is like a master who is generous. All through this parable, he's meeting the needs of the laborers. The 11th hour of workers were not hired for the final push. They probably had to- hardly had time to get their gloves on, but they were hired because they needed to receive a day's wage. It was a gift given, not a reward earned. And that's how the kingdom of heaven is. In Matthew's gospel, the only other time this word for laborer comes up is in Matthew chapter 9. And there Jesus speaks to his disciples of his compassion on those who are outside the kingdom of heaven and are helpless and harassed. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And here we have a picture of God in his grace, 
calling person after person to join in his work. From outside to inside, from helpless and harassed to the abundance of grace in salvation and the abundance of grace in the kingdom. And it's all a gift. God doesn't need us. He is self-sufficient. He lacks nothing. But like the workers in the parable, we have great needs. And God in his generosity holds out salvation. We've seen through this, passage, through this section in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus confirming he will gather his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We've seen him teaching about his kingdom and how he extends his salvation even to the least likely. And we see in this picture the master gathers widely. I was chatting to William about this last week and he told me of Christians he's met who would describe themselves as 1159ers. And they say this with this parable in mind. Humanly speaking, so unlikely to enter the kingdom and conscious of great need, the reality of sin, the justice of judgment we all deserve. And so thankful that we don't enter the kingdom on the basis of what we do, but because of what God has done for us. We come like children. We come like needy, unemployed laborers. Recipients of the Father's generosity. One writer puts it like this. It's from the apostle to the thief on the cross that the master calls laborers into his vineyard. And so then verse 29 and all those blessings, the abundant hundredfold blessings, well, they are true of each one. But it may be that we're here this morning and perhaps we're thinking, why am I here? I feel so far from being good enough from God. The 1159er, well, that describes me. And this parable says you don't enter the kingdom by performance, but by the grace of God. And so will you come and accept his offer? Depend on his work. Take the invitation to enter the vineyard. Jesus has died to forgive your sin. Will you come into the kingdom and enjoy the generosity of the master? The kingdom of heaven is like a master who is generous. But God's generosity, well, it is such that in this world it causes a scandal. And this is our second point, the scandal of grace. Let's read again from verse 8. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the masters of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who've borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Eleventh hour workers hold the denarius in their hand, and those hired first start to wonder what they'll get. If a denarius is going for only one hour worked, well, just imagine... Perhaps they're calculating the bonus or spending it in their minds. But then they get a denarius too. And they're incensed. And the issue here is not that the master has underpaid them. Verse 13, but he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? And in fact, we could imagine this whole scene going slightly differently. Imagine it like this. The master of the house went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers a denarius for a day, he sent them into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages. Each of them received a denarius. And they went home delighted. 
And they ate well that evening, and they praised the master for hiring them and providing for their needs. You see, the issue is not that the master's underpaid them or exploited them. Actually, have a look again at verse 12. They grumbled at the master of the house, saying, This last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who've borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. The first group grumble because the last lot got the same. They're saying, hey, we've labored more. How can they be paid equally? And I imagine we're pretty sensitive to this in the 21st century. When it comes to employment relations, there's a right concern for equality. Equal pay is a big issue. Equal pay for equal work. We expect a person to be paid for what they've done. We don't like it when they're paid when they aren't. I was told a story recently of a city worker who was livid at their half a million a year salary because they knew colleagues doing the same job were being paid more. But as one writer helpfully reminds us, when Jesus said this parable, he's not teaching principles of labor relations. He's teaching principles of grace. Jesus wants us as disciples or would-be disciples looking in and considering the kingdom of heaven this morning to really accept this. We can be utterly persuaded theologically that the kingdom of heaven operates on grace, but then functionally in the everyday, we find it much harder to believe. Like Peter, it's possible to live day by day as if we're in a merit system where God will reward our good performance. What then will we have? Look what I've done for you, Lord. It's possible to relate to God as if we're an account manager and we've got an invoice for him. The years of practical service, the unseen hours wrestling to prepare a Bible study, the cost of difficult relationships with friends or families or colleagues. Perhaps we've got the whole set of verse 29. And so we approach God, and I find myself doing this, I need to hear this, but we approach God with our invoice. Here's what I've done. Here's what I've been through for you. I've added it up. What then will we have? And when we think the kingdom of heaven is about performance-based rewards, when life is hard, we can wonder if God is really for us at all. The question, why? Why? What did I do? What did I fail to do? And then what makes it worse is we look sideways and we see someone else, and it seems like they haven't labored half as hard And yet their life seems so blessed, and it doesn't feel fair. And in his kindness, Jesus gives us his parable to help us. To show us the kingdom of heaven is like a master who is generous, and he is just. Verse 13, but he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Driving in London can be a challenge sometimes. There's a lot going on. They're always changing the road layouts. There are a lot of traffic laws. But if we drove perfectly through London and kept all of them all the time, we could not expect a reward from the mayor of London. We have just done our duty. In the same way, if we obeyed God perfectly in every way, we could only say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. The master's been fair and just. He doesn't owe them any debt. God is no man's debtor. Everything belongs to him. And God, who is sovereign, creator, and ruler, has the right to give as he chooses. 
The reformer Martin Luther puts it this way. He speaks of blessings that at times come to us through our labours and at times come to us without our labours, but never because of our labours. For God always gives them because of his undeserved mercy. And he gives to all in the kingdom. Did you notice that in verse 14? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Right from the beginning, this has been God's generosity. Finding the laborer in need and giving them a place in the vineyard. The first and the last. The 6 a.m., the 11.59er. He gave to all. All at one time, idle and outside, in the market square, dead in trespasses and sin, and the master calls and gives. Jesus gathers and builds his church. And in his kindness, he calls even the most unexpected to the privilege of laboring in his kingdom and gives abundantly what we don't deserve. Salvation by grace, the blessings of the kingdom by grace, provision by grace, the scandal of grace. The kingdom of heaven, will we accept it? And so we come to our third point. Gazing at God's goodness guards us against grumbling. Just look again at verse 15. The master says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? If you look down in the footnotes, you'll see there uh, a literal translation of that phrase. "Do Do you begrudge my generosity? Is your eye bad because I am good? Is your eye bad because I am good? They're both good translations, but the literal one just kind of gets to the heart of the issue. It expresses and exposes the wrestle we can have with grace. We, if the eye here can see what's happening, but it doesn't like it. The eye is bad because God is good. And a symptom of a bad eye is grumbling. The author Jerry Bridges observes, we all want grace, but we cannot enjoy grace when there's an attitude of comparison. And this language of grumbling, it goes back and picks up from that reading we had in Exodus, Israel's grumbling in the wilderness. Having been saved from slavery in Egypt, Israel's on a journey to the promised land. And yet the journey was hard, and they grumbled. And they suggested that God was vindictive, that he'd even brought them out of Egypt into the wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Life was hard, but when we consider the Exodus storyline, their grumbling doesn't quite add up. They were desperately in need in Egypt, and God reached in to rescue, and he did it all. He gave blessings. He adopted them as his treasured children. He went with them to the promised land. See, God is good, and it's so vital to be confident of this, because it means we can trust him, and we can praise his generosity and his abounding grace. We've seen it in the parable. We see it through chapters 19 and 20. Jesus welcomes all who come to him like little children. And as we look forward to verse 18 and 19, we see it demonstrated most fully in his work, the work of the Lord Jesus at the cross. See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they'll condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. This is the Son of Man who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so where will we fix our gaze, focus our eye? Is it on others in comparison? Or will we gaze at God's goodness, supremely displayed in his saving work? 
when it's difficult walking with Jesus and serving him, or when the wilderness of the journey of life feels especially hard or hostile. Gazing at God's goodness will guard us against grumbling. We'll see his generosity, his mercy to us. We'll see ourselves less as 6 a.m. as and more like 11th hours. We'll rejoice when another 11.59er enters the kingdom and give thanks when we see God give gifts to others because of his abounding generosity. It may be for some of us that we find it hard to accept God's grace towards us. We know we don't deserve a reward. We know we deserve judgment and hell. Perhaps we receive blessings in the form of love or service of others, and we find it hard to accept them. And here God says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? He's extended grace to us because he wants to. It's nothing to do with our performance. And his grace is abundant. Back in chapter 19, verse 12, we considered the example of the eunuch and their devotion for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And it's a devotion for the sake of the kingdom of heaven flowing from an understanding of what the kingdom of heaven is like. And so the question Jesus poses is, will we accept this parable? And as we do, it will help us grow in our devotion to our king. The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house, and he is generous, good, and abounding in grace. And so Jesus concludes where he began, verse 16. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. It's not about performance-based rewards. We're not to look for correlations between performance and blessing. In the kingdom of heaven, wonderfully, God doesn't give us what we deserve. He abounds in grace. And as we see our need... And the goodness of God, we will see how last we are and how first we have become. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that you are generous. We thank you that for all who come to you like little children, you don't deal with us as we deserve, but with abundant grace. And so we ask that you would help us to gaze at your goodness and to see your generosity, and to praise your glorious grace. Thank you that this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. And so we ask that you would help us to accept this word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.